This is a code red. I repeat, this is a code red. There are spoilers ahead, so make sure to watch all of Stranger Things 3 on Netflix before going any further. Who do you work for? The Scoops. <laughs> Scoops away. Deep underneath the shiny new Starcourt Mall, Steve Harrington and his co-worker Robin are tied up, back-to-back, all doped up on some Russian truth serum. They're being interrogated by a Soviet officer. How did you find us? Totally by accident. <laughs> I bet weird. What was exciting for me on one level was just, if you're doing a story set in the mid-80s, the Cold War would be a part of that. This is Sean Levy. He's an executive producer and one of the directors of Stranger Things. He's the guy the Duffer brothers originally brought the idea to, and he helped them pitch it to Netflix. And once the Duffers started outlining season three, they let Sean know that they were going to bring in a Russian plotline. Back when I thought it was still like a really outdated idea and a throwback idea, now oddly topical. That's Matt. He is one half of the Duffer brothers. But at the time, it seemed uh, almost like borderline cheesy. But we always loved the idea of Russians and then trying to then, then it became how do we interweave them? How do we connect them to this mall and so on? It just kind of grew from there and it just starts to grow. It ended up growing into an epic plot. The Russians would buy up a bunch of land around Hawkins and use development as a front. They would build Starcourt Mall to disguise and supply their secret lab. And in that lab, they were going to try to open up the gate that Eleven had closed last season. We've seen the Americans and now the Soviets trying to harness the power that seems to reside in the Upside Down through that gate. In Stranger Things 1, we watched the Americans use Eleven's powers to spy on the Soviets. But that was pretty much the only time they mentioned the Cold War. We didn't know what the Soviets were trying to do with the Upside Down, if anything. In Season 2, there were no Russians in sight. But now, in Stranger Things 3, the Cold War is heating up. We've seen both sides of the Cold War now try to tap into it and control it in order to weaponize it. So it just felt like a really, a really compelling way to take a real-world fear, a, a, an actual, authentic, historical paranoia, and to mix it with a very specific kind of sci-fi genre plot that is unique to Stranger Things. So we are going to take apart the Russian plotline and show you how the writers and the crew put it all together. We are going to meet the greatest Russian investigative unit known to man, the Scoop Street. Commence operation, child endangerment. We are going to go deep inside the underground lair. Holy mother of God. And we're going to take a close look at the final fight scenes between Hopper and Grigori. You ready to end this? I'm Dan Taberski, and this is Behind the Scenes of Stranger Things 3, Episode 2, The Red Scare. Susie? Susie, is that you? In the first chapter of Stranger Things 3, Dustin comes home from camp with a cool new hat, and, at least according to him, an even cooler new girlfriend. They were going hot and heavy at camp, but she's a Mormon, and her parents wouldn't approve of their relationship, so obviously they can't use a standard phone line to coo and sing harmonies together. Instead, Dustin makes a Cerebro radio antenna, which is way more romantic than sliding into someone's DM, in my opinion. And while he's turning the dial, trying to find the right frequency, he hears this peculiar message. 
For the gang from Stranger Things, it's the first inkling that the Russians are up to something in Hawkins. I don't know about invading, but I was totally scared of nuclear war. Curtis Gwynn, a co-executive producer and writer on Stranger Things, he remembers the Cold War. The threat of a global thermonuclear war wiping out his hometown, it felt real. I'm the old guy in the room. So I was basically Erica's age. So I just knew all that stuff. I I know it because I was there. I'm also a 70s baby, so I remember it too. But for Curtis, the Cold War was even closer to home. My father was a Navy guy who was in the Cuban blockade. Like He was a naval officer that blocked Russian boats coming into Cuba. He was part of that. So I was raised completely like, right, the, you know, the, this, you know, we're going to go to war. There could be war. Plus, in the 1980s, all of us were watching Cold War doomsday movies, like my favorite, The Day After, which was supposed to be so scary that my parents wouldn't even let me watch it. So I had to sneak watching it on the little television in my kitchen. And you would see these nuclear strikes, you know, on these like, you know, all American or all suburban cities in, in England and in America. And then the, 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 the horrific aftermath. So we, we to us, it was like you can't ignore that aspect of that era. And it just sort of fits perfectly in with the vibe of the 80s. When the writers made that pop culture calendar that we talked about last time, the one with all the top songs and hit movies from back then, the writers were also adding political events and looking into the general zeitgeist of the time. And in July 1985, that means Reagan, Gorbachev, and a heavily paranoid America. The Cold War was certainly as iconic to the 1980s as New Coke was. Plus, Matt Duffer points out that bringing a bunch of Russians to Hawkins was actually convenient. You know, we always struggled a little bit with the U.S. government as the bad guys because there's only so many times you can punch and or kill, you know, U.S. <laughs> government or military personnel um, before you're just going to get locked away. I mean, there's in America. So in, in that sense, they were an easier human villain and we could do a lot more with them. The Russians offer the same logic as the mall being a contained space for all the monster shit to go down without the town being the wiser. If Hopper were to gun down dozens of U.S. government officials, people would know. The president would get involved. But Hopper can get away with a lot more when he's dealing with secret Russian labs. Everybody out! Obviously, the Russian plotline is based less on the historical events of the time and more on the movies that the Duffer brothers were obsessed with growing up. Movies like Hunt for Red October, Red Dawn, or War Games. But what is historically accurate is the omnipresent, looming fear and paranoia that people like Curtis and myself experienced at that time. The Duffers wanted to do something with that long before Stranger Things even existed. One of the early films we made was actually set uh, in one of our friends' bomb shelters. And so it was always sort of part of our, we were sort of after, ever since then, we sort of became obsessed with this, this idea of, you know, what it would be like to live in a world where there's this impending, this, this threat that, that's always there. That was Ross, by the way. I will personally give you a USS Butterscotch Sunday on the house if you are able to tell the Duffer Brothers apart by just their voices. Good luck. Anyway, they didn't film in their friend's bomb shelter for Stranger Things 3. Instead, they built an entire Russian underground lair. But in order for us to get to that lair, we first need to get to know the characters who find it and take on the Russians. So we need to say ahoy 
to the Scoops Troop. You nerds in position or what? Yeah, we're in position. It's all quiet here, so you've got the green light. Green light. Roger that. Commence operation. Child in danger. Can we maybe not call it that? See you on the other side, nerds. Our code-cracking, commie-butt-kicking team is made up of Dustin, co-worker Steve and Robin, and Erica Sinclair. You know, putting Steve Harrington with Erica Sinclair, on paper, that doesn't make any sense, but neither did Dustin and Steve. And so one of the, the great skills of the Duffers and of our show, I think, is trying pairings that we've never done before and often bottling magic by the new dynamics that come up in these new pairings. Back in the writer's room, the Duffers and the writers had to do the messy business of connecting their characters with the Russian plotline. They had to follow this logic. Okay, they're going to be Russians. We know they're going to be connected to Starcourt Mall. And someone's going to have to figure out they're there. And then they're going to have to want to do something about it. Because it's part of story. It wasn't just random, right? Curtis Gwynn, he knows that the key to Stranger Things is about grounding the plot in our characters. And for the Scoops Troop, it starts by having Dustin hear that message while trying to reach Susie. And they knew Steve was going to be working at the mall. We knew that Steve... His arc was taking him on a, on a humility journey. In Stranger Things 1, Steve was the preppy jerk we love to hate. Then, as Nancy breaks his heart and he bonds with Justin, he became the slightly more humble babysitting goofball we love to love. And now, rather than ruling a college campus from a fraternity balcony, he is in a sailor's cap, slinging ice cream at Scoops Ahoy. So, with the lab sitting just below where Steve works, the writers knew he'd be in close proximity to the Russians. And the writers also knew that they wanted to pair Steve and Dustin again, because Joe Keery and Gate Matarazzo, the actors who play them, they have such great comedic chemistry together. So do you really just get to eat as much of this as you want? Yeah, I mean, sure. It's not a really good idea for me, though. You know, I gotta keep in shape for the ladies. Yeah, and how's that working out for you? Ignore her. She seems cool. She's not. So, uh, but the writers also wanted to keep taking Steve down a few pegs. So we wanted to put him there and with a classmate that he barely even remembers or knows, but certainly remembers him, who was part of the outsider group. And that is how we got Robin. I'm fluent in four languages, you know. Russian? Uye arye umbade. Holy shit. That was cool. pig Latin dingus. Now let's be real. Dustin and Steve were helpless before Robin stepped in to translate. My ears are little geniuses, trust me. <laughs> Come on, it's your turn to sling ice cream, my turn to translate. I don't even want credit, I'm just bored. The writers joke about how there are already too many characters. It's hard to keep track of them all. But there are still voids in the Stranger Things universe that need to be filled. Bringing in Robin would help move Steve and Dustin's story forward. She would offer a new dynamic for Steve, who we haven't really seen interact with people his own age in a while. And it would expand our universe of nerddom, because Robin's unlike any nerd we've seen in Hawkins. She's a band geek. I definitely had an experience filming it, where in the beginning, I was really trying to figure out who Robin was, and I was trying to like be her and be as cool as she is. Robin is played by my a hawk, as in the Thurman Hawks, as in Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawk are her parents. Robin is played by Maya Hawk. Then as filming went on, I realized that she could be as lame as I am and that she had the room 
within the story to really be a full human being with the potential to be vulnerable and to cry and to make mistakes and to have her jokes not land. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I think that as I loosened up and got more comfortable on set, she loosens up and gets more comfortable with with Steve and, you know, with this whole scoop troop. I was really interested in having a voice of like a, like of a teenage outsider who's kind of like okay with being an outsider. Kate Treefree is one of the six writers on Stranger Things, counting the duffers. It's all a joke and you and these girls that come by and your hair and all this stuff is like hilarious and more than a little bit sad to her. You know, I thought that it would be that like I was very much that person in high school and I thought it would be good to kind of depict that, like, defiant ghost world sort of intentionally outsider vibe. You know what Ghost World is, right? Ghost World is an amazing comic book series from the early 90s. It follows two cynical, witty girls who are best friends and just graduated high school. It was later turned into a movie starring Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson. It was her breakout role. Kate reread Ghost World when she was writing this season to help emulate that alt-weirdo, cool-girl feel. And the costume designer, Amy Paris, was able to sprinkle that vibe into Robin's look. She pairs Robin's scoops uniform with a Madonna-style one-cross earring, and she's got some punk bracelets on, too. And when it came to their shoes, Amy put Robin and Steve in a classic 80s sneaker. You know, Steve's in blue shoes, so I thought it'd be nice to put her in red, and we tried a few different options, and we settled on the Converse. And to make them look more worn in, Amy suggested that Maya take them home for a bit. She's like, yeah, and can I draw on them? And I was like, will you please draw on them? And so she took them home and and drew on them. And when she came back to work, she had written the word boobs and drew breasts and, you know, had a lot of squiggles. And I just thought, okay, that's clever and fun, cool. And then later on when we find out about her character, it made a little bit more sense. But I didn't know the development of her as a character. So I liked that she kind of infused that in quietly. And it's there subtly. So that's Robin. But we are still missing someone. The fourth and final member of the Scoops troop, Lucas's little sister, Erica Sinclair. You can't spell America without Erica. Erica is not a new character, but she certainly is way more involved this season. Thank God. You know what I love most about this country? Capitalism. I loved the idea that she's like this little kind of almost like sociopathic, capitalist, brilliant mind, you know? Do you know what capitalism is? Yeah. Yeah. It means this is a free market system, which means people get paid for their services depending on how valuable their contributions are. She's like a Veep character. And it seems to me my ability to fit into that little bit is very, very valuable to you all. The Duffers never expected Erica to have a big role. But last season, when Priya Ferguson got to set as Erica and started calling her big brother Lucas a nerd, they knew that would have to change. So then the writers had to figure out what to do with her. It would make sense to have her be a mall rat, and one who takes advantage of the unlimited sample policy at Scoops Ahoy, which gets her closer to Dustin, Steve, and Robin. And, as Sean Levy explains, it gets her closer to the Russian plotline. And the idea of placing her in the middle of the narrative and of literally putting a young child with incredible attitude in the midst of a world-saving plotline, that is just such an inappropriate mashup, but it's such a perfect formula for comedy and, I think, for fun. Erica? What the hell is that? A deadly weapon. Could be useful. 
Another benefit of bringing Erica into the group is that she would be able to fit into those vents. After Robin breaks that secret Russian code, Dustin, Steve, and Robin realize that the Russians are transporting something through the back corridors of the mall and into a key code locked delivery room. But they don't have the key, so they have to find another way into that room. Air ducts. Exactly. Turns out this secret room needs air just like any old room, and these air ducts lead all the way here. The writers knew that going through the air ducts was a thing from Die Hard, but Kate actually looked up real mall blueprints to make sure that it wasn't too far-fetched of a plan. And it wasn't. Yeah, it's totally possible. Nope, do not try this in your own mall. In fact, they didn't even really do it on Stranger Things. There's a lot of movie magic that goes into filming in air ducts. Like, they don't even film in actual air ducts. The art department has to build them first. I actually, I was just, I was just going through some old videos on my phone that I'm now allowed to post. And I have these videos from our vent test day. Sean Levy directed Chapter 4, which is when Dustin tries to get into those air ducts. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know if you can fit in here. It's like uh, super tight. I'll fit. Trust me. No collarbones, remember? And Sean had to have that vent test day because here's the thing. Gaten, who plays Dustin, he really doesn't have collarbones in real life. He has a condition called cleidocranial dysplasia. So with that vent that they built for him, he was actually able to get into it too easily. So the art director, Sean Brennan, he had to try again and again and again to make sure it would be a nice, snug comedy fit. To make it look like a struggle, we actually had to decrease the vent size to where it was like it was crazy that anybody could fit through it. We had to do like three or four different sizes, and we did a test inside Jazzer size of him crawling through all these different sizes. They finally got the right size for Gaten, and then after they were done filming that scene, they switched to a bigger air duct size for Priya to make it seem like Erica, who was much smaller, had more room in there. All right, nerds. I'm there. And then it was a lot of me just kind of encouragingly screaming at Priya um, in a nice supportive way, like, let's go, Priya, hustle, move, 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 move. Basically, like, I was putting her through one of those marine crawling on your belly drills. There was a lot of that on set as well. Thanks to Erica, the Scoops troop is able to make it into the delivery room and finally see whatever it is the Russians were transporting in those Imperial Panda and Kaufman shoeboxes. That's definitely not Chinese food. It's almost like fun at first. This is Curtis again, one of the writers. You know what I mean? It's like the logic of it is kind of kid logic and teen logic, but which I love, which is we're going to figure this out, man. Like I remember being a teenager and a kid thinking along those lines if something weird happened, you know, it, it, we would try to figure it out ourselves. It was like this, your curiosity would get peaked. So it's almost like they just keep pushing it a little too far, a little too far, you know, to the point where, uh-oh, we're in an adventure now. Shit. That adventure sends them plummeting down a surprise elevator. <laughs> and right into a Russian underground lab. Holy mother of God. Well, hope you guys are in good shape. Looking at you, roast beef. The delivery room elevator doors open to reveal a daunting underground tunnel system. 
you can't not be a little bit intimidated walking through the set and feeling like scary crap is about to go down. Denise Godoy is the unit publicist on Stranger Things. She gathers all the behind-the-scenes video content, so she spends a lot of time on set. Denise was also an 80s kid who was very aware and very scared of the Cold War. So the first time in the Russian lab set was intense for her. It literally is underground when you walk in from the parking garage. And you just walk through all these crazy huge warehouse hallways. And then you part this door and it's Russia. And it was dark and there was these guys walking around in costume, like 80s Cold War era Russian costumes. And there was like a little bit of moment of fear that I I felt right away. And I thought, you know, the art department really, they nailed it. When the Duffers and the writers were breaking the plot, they wanted to convey to the art department how menacing this place should feel. So they gave homage to one of their favorite movies and started calling it The Death Star. Their production designer, Chris Trujillo, he took that idea and ran with it. To honor our pet name for it, we did in a few places specifically refer to some of the architecture in the Death Star, just like some sort of funky wall panel stuff that we did. And, you know, I think any fan of Star Wars watching it would would see kind of in the background in a couple places some very specific, but I like to think subtle references to those sets, which are, you know, unbelievable. I'm not a nerd. I don't, I've never really seen Star Wars all the way through. This is Jess Royal, the set decorator. Remember, she works with Chris and the art directors, Sean and John. I mean, I would, like, go watch little, th- like, on YouTube, just enough to be like, okay, I got it. I know what that is. But, like, even then, I was like, I don't care about Star Wars at all. I'm sorry. Oh, it's so bad. I shouldn't say this on the I'm recording this. But, um, yeah. The good news for Jess is that what they were calling the Death Star wasn't a complete Death Star fabrication. Chris likes to balance sci-fi with real-life inspiration to give a more believable setting for the show. He looked into Soviet-era brutalist architecture, and he researched all different types of underground bunkers and tunnel systems. Then he brought those ideas to Jess and the art director, Sean. And we poured over the references and looked, and then there was one particular one that stood out. And I think it was a, a picture of a hydroelectric dam or uh, some sort of a tunnel system uh, within that. And just that one little photo was kind of the launching pad to designing that whole world. The set itself was massive and really felt like a maze to walk around. Chris and his team tried to design it in a way where the tunnels and the rooms would all connect to allow for continuous camera work. And even though the set looks sparse, that still takes a lot of work to pull off. Like that one smaller room where the Scoops troop comes face to face with a Russian soldier. The art department paid close attention to all the details in that communication room, from the very specific red light that pours out of the column to the buttons on the control panel. If you ever see a control panel in a movie or a TV show, like have sympathy for those people because that is a ton of work. And um, I hired a buyer that was like my button buyer, and um, he just like went to the old like airplane graveyards and stuff around Atlanta, and we did a lot of ordering from like McMaster Car and Granger and stuff and got – cool looking buttons and lights and you know then we kind of lay them all out and we draw them in a plan they make the panels for all that stuff to go in and then we just kind of give it all to our fixtures guy who would control all of that from like a control board off camera 
I know we're dealing with a fantastical version of the Cold War, but when the art department takes this kind of care to bring authentic 1980s motifs to the set, it makes the show seem that much more real. For Denise, who you heard from earlier, the team did such a great job, it kind of triggered some stuff. So I personally had a fear of Russians, of the Cold War Russian era, and that scariness of these men walking around with their their uniforms that with all the insignia and their boots and the just the sort of ominous feeling of this scary Russian soldier. Oh, and of course we had all the fake guns that they were carrying around, you know, just patrolling the underground. Amy Paris and her team put those soldiers in authentic 1980s Soviet military uniforms. They would either buy them overseas or rent them from an L.A. costume house. And that insignia? Her team researched what Soviet military shoulder straps looked like back then, and which pins signified an officer's rankings. Which is why the Russian guy who ends up interrogating Steve has got more bling on his uniform than the guy who's beating Steve up. That one's done. Who do you work for? For the millionth time, I work at Scoops Ahoy! Scoops Ahoy. This is the point in the Russian plotline where the Scoops troop stops having a fun Goonies adventure and starts having a Red Dawn plot with real life or death consequences. And they do end up surviving the Death Star. But they weren't the only Americans to venture into its vast tunnels and come face to face with the enemy. I'm going to tell you right now, we can't confirm nor deny Hopper's fate. But no matter what happens to Hopper's body or soul, he made a sacrifice. And we are going to dig into why. One of the greater themes of the show is that you have to grow or you'll die. This is Kate Treefree again, one of the writers. She says that Hopper's arc was something all of the writers were absolutely sure of this season. Hopper is always somebody who's trying to contend with his own past and his own demons and his own worst habits, you know. And the question is always, is he going to be able to survive that or not? In the beginning of Stranger Things 3, it doesn't seem like Hopper will even survive Eleven and Mike being in a relationship. Hey! Hey! Three-inch minimum! Leave the door open three inches! I guess the real inciting event is almost that opening scene when uh, he hears them. And it starts him on this journey to like, how do I, how do I get these kids apart? How do I not have this happen? How do I stem the tide of puberty? That deep voice reverberating through your headphones right now is, of course, David Harbour, who we all know and love as Jim Hopper. Having a teenager in the house is new territory for Hopper. His daughter died when she was only five years old, and her death was completely out of his control, and it haunts him. And now it feels like Eleven is slipping further and further from his control, and it's maddening. It's the reason why he goes on the journey that he goes on, is because he loves her, doesn't understand how to be a good parent to her, has all these conflicted feelings about resenting her growing up. Um, Not resenting her growing up, but like, well, maybe but more like he wants to stem the tide. And I think that the real issue that Hopper's grappling with, which you don't really get to see, you see kind of funny moments of it. You know, you see him like chew out Mike and you see him like lose his mind and lie about things and yell at Joyce. And uh, and then you get to see the real thing that he's grappling with, which is 
change and which is time itself, right? Which is like the ultimate villain. For a guy who doesn't like to be in touch with his emotions, Hopper has to face a lot this season. Joyce, who he can barely ask out, is considering moving away. There's a new mall that's changing the fabric of the town, which directly affects his job as sheriff. And his daughter is growing up faster than he anticipated. He's filled with confusion and rage, and he desperately wants to protect the people he loves, even if he can't bring himself to tell them that he loves them. And then amidst all this internal chaos, he keeps getting pummeled by Grigori, the Russian Terminator. You understand what I'm saying, big guy? Drop the weapon or what? Hopper is being tormented by this 1980s Russian supervillain at every turn. And it's all leading up to the magnum opus of fights, their final brawl in the Death Star. I don't really know how to fight anybody. Uh, <laughs> so it's not my strength. So we get, we know story beats, but I don't know that. I know the emotion I want to feel, but I don't know anything besides like a punch and a kick. Matt Duffer may not know how to fight, but he and his brother Ross usually script out all the action sequences. But they tried something different with this final fight scene. It basically is in the script. It's kind of like they fight and we <laughs> turn it over to Hero and he he took the reins on that. And he, you know, he's incredible at doing telling stories through action. Being able to walk in the set. I mean, the first time when it was built to look at it was like it's a stuntman's playground. It was going to be uh, it was going to be fun. Hiro Koda is the new stunt coordinator and second unit director on Stranger Things 3. The Duffer brothers really were open to kind of letting me do what I what I needed to do. The only thing I asked of them is, what path do you want? Where do we start? Where do we end? The Duffers told Hito that they wanted this fight to feel like the airplane sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where all this chaos happens around them as they're fighting. The fight starts in the control room. Grigori comes up behind Hopper, surprising him right as he and Joyce were about to turn the key and shut down the giant gun. I'm three. I'm three. One, two. The beginning of the fight, when Grigori does show up, there's a moment there that he deals with Joyce. This happens really quickly in the scene. In the script, the Duffers wrote that Joyce gets tossed to the side. The thought being that she can't be a part of the fight and also that she can't try to turn the key herself just yet. But it's up to Hito to decide how Joyce gets tossed aside. I tossed an idea to the Duffers brothers and I was like, hey, can we can we do this? And I wanted to throw it into the console and it made it really violent. I was gonna throw it, I said, I'll throw her head first into it and that knocks her out. And it was, a, it was a moment of the Duffer brothers trying to figure it out. They're like, uh, can we do that? Like, we've never really hurt Joyce before. Yes, let's do it. We're going to do it. Let's do it. This is what Matt meant when he said Hito tells story through action. There's motivation and reason behind each punch, kick, and toss. Hito also had to consider the emotional arc of the fight. It had to have ups and downs. And Hito knew it would move from the control room to the big gun. And we knew, obviously, the end of the fight. We wanted him throwing him into, in, into this machine. Then you've got to design a part of the machine that can chew him up and shred <laughs> him up. And there were so many takes that we had fun with where it was like, happy 4th of July, you son of a... As Grigori is spinning and shredding into nothingness, it dawns on Joyce and Hopper that Hopper is not getting out of there. And they need to close the gate right 
now. Close it now! Close it! I think I mean, we always talk about Empire Strikes Back. We always wanted like a darker ending. We wanted to give him like a Han Solo kind of a sacrifice moment. The Duffer brothers have been wanting Hopper to make some sort of self-sacrifice since season one. They would talk about it in the writer's room and with David Harbour. But doing it in the first two seasons, it didn't feel earned. And it finally, you know, I remember calling David and saying, I think, you know, I think this is a great moment for it. That moment comes right after Hopper throws Gregory onto the gun. It was emotional to shoot, but it was really, really quick. I don't remember. We David never asked for music, but I think we did play some emotional music when we shot David's final look. Yeah, final look at Winona. The look that David gives, where it's like it's there. He's he's. It, there's a tragedy there, but there's also a little bit of like it's okay to Joyce. There's just like there's so much going on in his eyes, and you can only script that so much. And what he did to just sort of to get all that across in a single look, and it's like maybe five seconds. It's I mean, that is pretty, pretty amazing, amazing stuff. Hopper, he's almost smiling. There's a sense of calm that comes over him, whether that's because he's got a plan to save himself or because he's about to save the world. We're not going to know for quite some time. I think you know I can't say much about the after credit scene. This is Sean Levy again, one of the executive producers and directors of the series. Already we're seeing such a flurry of theories and questions and hypotheses about what happened, what might happen next. And we're pretty thrilled to keep people guessing. While Joyce and Hopper were fighting the human villains of the season, the rest of the kids were battling the supernatural and facing the biggest, grossest monster we've seen yet. That's next time on Behind the Scenes of Stranger Things 3. We always had this idea that what if he was locked in here with Hawkins with the kids, and, and what would he do if he was locked in? We wanted to do something flashy this year. We both lost our voice because every time prior to the take rolling, we would just scream at each other and scream and scream and scream until we cried. We couldn't do one another ending where it's just 11 at the end, just holding out her hand and, and vanquishing this thing. We, you know, we've done that twice before, and I thought, how scary would it be if she's not? And how scary is it moving forward? Behind the Scenes of Stranger Things 3 is produced by Netflix and Pineapple Street Media. You can listen to this show on Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review it to help other people find it. I'm your host, Dan Taberski. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> 